Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast with Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Pastor Bob conducts personal interviews with Christian influencers from around the globe, helping Christian authors, recording artists, CEOs, entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders, and yes, pastors and ministry leaders to get the word out about what they are doing to impact the world with the gospel. Our podcast has been rated in the top one half percent of all podcasts in the world by ListenNotes.com, so you know your message will be heard. Now, here is your host with today's interview, Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Hello, everyone, everywhere. Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads podcast for today. We're so blessed that you're joining us. Today is part two of a great two-part interview with our guest today, Pastor Scott LaPierre, the senior pastor of Woodland Christian Church in Woodland, Washington. Now, he's he's the author of multiple books with more to come, but he's also the host of the Living Way podcast. But his latest book is what we're discussing today, Your Marriage, God's Way, a biblical guide to a Christ-centered relationship. And folks, our conversation was so good we end up having a three-part interview. This is part two. So if you missed any of part one, you got to go back and catch up. Amen? Now, all right, now, we're going to jump right back into this interview because it's so exciting with Pastor Scott LaPierre. What does submission mean? It doesn't mean what, you know, like a slave mm-hmm. from Ephesians 5.24. It does not talk about uh, when I perform wedding ceremonies. You know, I get down to the verse, to verse 24, and I'll read that, and, and then I'll just stop right in the middle of the ceremony. And I say, let me stop right here for a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I explain what that submission means. You know, the group, Greek word is hupotasso, which means mm-hmm. basically stand along beside and support. Mm-hmm. It's and a, a military I, term, I, actually. Yeah, I, I get I get the, you know, the amen, usually from the women. Was amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's, I, I understand Um kind of the cringe worthiness of that word yeah. to some people. Cause I wasn't a Christian growing up. And then I remember in my early twenties, learning that wives are commanded to submit to their husbands and thinking that sounded incredibly foolish or chauvinistic. And so I, I guess I might back up a little to get some momentum into this answer. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at any organization or structure in our world, you'll, if the, you know, there's leaders, if it's businesses, there's CEOs, if there's organizations, there's presidents, you know, there's head coaches, there's pilots, um, so we recognize the need for authority or headship, but what don't you ever see? You never see two presidents. You see president, vice president. You don't see two head coaches. You see head coach, assistant coach. You see pilot, co-pilot, even in an operating room. I mean, who wants to be operated when there's two head surgeons arguing about what to do? And so my point is the entire secular world recognizes the need for headship and submission or authority and that you can't have two heads that you're going to have problems when there are. So 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, identifies the husband as that head. And what does this look like practically? Well, Genesis 2, 8, so God creates, and at the end of each day, it says that it was good what he saw. And then the first time that he sees something that is not good, interestingly, the fall had not happened. We we generally think everything was good until after the fall, but it Mm -hmm. says that God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. I will create him a helper comparable to him. And so God has given wives to us as helpers. And interestingly, this is another term that can be offensive or cringeworthy to women. They don't want to be called a helper. And, you know, Bob, one of the things that's, that's sad about that is that title helper 
is more of God's commentary on man's inadequacy or man's insufficiency. Mm, It's actually God is looking and saying a man needs help. He kind of says, you know, Bob and Scott, you guys are not going to make it. I need to give you a wife that's going to, yeah. you, you know, and helper is the Amen. title that's used throughout scripture. Uh, Jesus says he'll send the helper in Psalms. God is called the helper. It's a, it's a title of power, authority, significance. Um, so a woman should never, should never buck against or, or recoil at being called a helper. Yeah. So how, how does a wife help her husband? Well, there are lots of ways, but regarding, let's just deal with uh, one aspect of it in this conversation about submission. A wife gives her husband counsel, her thoughts, advice. She provides suggestions. She can provide criticisms. You know, many times we've come home and Katie has said, you didn't listen to this person when they were talking to you, or you interrupted too much, or you, mm. and, and she, you know, you sounded kind of rude, or you shouldn't have made that joke. And those are all things that help me. I'll preach. And she says, you were talking too fast or so, but let's just say there's a decision that needs to be made and the husband and wife have talked at length and a husband has listened to all of his wife's thoughts and, and counsel and they can't come to an agreement. You know, the husband feels they should go left and the wife feels they should go right. So at this point, when the husband had, has heard all of his wife's thoughts, how, does, how do you proceed? How does the relationship go forward? You know, are you going to flip a coin or is it going to be paper, rock, scissors and whoever wins gets to decide? So God has decided that for the relationship to go forward, the husband will, will be the decision maker, that it will rest on his shoulders. And that's when submission comes into play. So submission, at least in my experience, is not something that men f- throw around lightly, at least godly men don't. You know, rarely do, do they lay down the submission card. Um, but the fact is when a husband and wife have talked at length and there must be a decision and the husband decides what to do, then the wife puts herself behind her husband or arranges herself, Hupatasso arranges herself behind. So a, a woman is not agreeing with the decision when she submits. In fact, she thinks it's the wrong decision because, so for, here's, here's a situation I've heard many times. A wife will say, well, I would submit to my husband if I agreed with him. When a wife says that, she's revealing she doesn't understand what submission is. Because if you agreed with your husband, you wouldn't have to submit to him. Submission is entirely in place for when a wife doesn't agree with her husband. And if you agreed, then submission, how many times if, if, you're, yeah. if your wife makes your favorite meal, you don't say, oh, I'm going to submit to you and eat it. You know, you're, you're, <laughs> so, so submission is for when the husband and wife disagree and the wife goes along with her husband's decision that she actually disagrees with. Mm-hmm. And so God That's and a woman, can, a woman can struggle with that. But here's the thing, Bob, if, a, if the expectation was that a woman would make sure that she was convinced of the decision being made, then that would mean that she would never stop arguing. She can never stop pushing. So God says, you don't agree with the decision. You probably think it's, or you think it's the wrong decision, but I still expect you to submit to your husband and support the decision that he support, not necessarily the decision, but the mm-hmm. person making the decision. And so um, there's, you know, been lots of situations where I've seen husbands and wives and they don't, they don't really understand what submission is or isn't, but most of the problems in the marriage relationship relate to those two primary commands being Amen. disobeyed. The husband not loving his wife as he should, and the wife not respecting or submitting to her husband as, as she should. And if you can, and if you can draw people under those two commands in obedience to them, many problems just kind of have a way of working themselves out. But we, we live in a world that's 
um, you know, egalitarian. Do you know, do you know, does that sound common? Okay. For any of your listeners that don't know, and I don't know if I'm talking too much, just let me know, interrupt me, Bob. <laughs> okay. I'm just sitting here drinking coffee and listening, brother. Oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> okay. So there's basically, um, it might be a little bit of an oversimplification, but two views of genders, uh, of men and women, there's what's known as egalitarianism, which I completely disagree with, which is the view that men and women have identical roles and responsibilities or commands given to them. Um, the view which I believe is biblical, and I think any honest reading of scripture uh, presents or people should acknowledge, acknowledge is what's known as complementarian, uh, not C-O-M-P-L-I like you compliment or praise someone, but complement C-O-M-P-L-E fitting together, complementing. And what this means is God has given us distinct and different roles and responsibilities. And, and, and that's what I mean by any honest reading. We just talked earlier and we can see that Ephesians 5 is written to husbands and Ephesians 520, Ephesians 5.25 to husbands, Ephesians 5.22 to 24 to wives, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 to wives, and then verse 7 written to husbands. We can see that the same things are not said to exactly. men and women. Yeah. And so that's showing the distinctions between the roles. Now you see egalitarianism in what I would say are liberal churches where you have female pastors, where men are not expected to be leaders in the home or in the church. Complementarian churches are those churches that are going to be led, led by men, and men are expected to be leaders, not only in the church, but also in the home. And I think it's, the church has been on this kind of downward spiral or downward trend regarding complementarianism, and it's become such a a plague or it's so wicked. Here's what I mean. Genesis uh, 5 and Genesis 2, it says, or Genesis, um, I think it's what is it, 128, it says, God made them male and female, male and female, he created them. Mm-hmm. Well, there's clear distinctions between the genders. And, and, when God, and when there was marriage, God recognized a man and woman together. Well, the world, in its rebellion against God, has blurred this line between the genders. It began with a blurring of men being able to marry men or women being mm-hmm. able to marry women. But now that line is not even blurred any longer. It's removed. So it's erased so completely that a man can supposedly become a woman and a woman can supposedly become a man. I mean, maybe it was cross-dressing before, but there was nothing done to the body. It was just a man wearing a woman's clothes. Well, now there are people who are mutilating their bodies and claiming that they are the other, the other gender. Well, I'm actually not trying to criticize the world right now. I'm trying to comment on some churches that have not taken a greater stand against exactly. against the gender um, bl- exactly. the blurring of the of the line. So, yep. if the world, if the church is, you know, going downhill, we can't expect the church. We can't expect the world to be on the upward trend. It's got to be the church that's setting the tone and pursuing pursuing what God's word says. And God must look down and just just be, you know, horrified. I don't know if I'd say horrified because he's not surprised by things. Disappointed. But, Disappointed. I can't imagine how he must yeah. feel looking at some of the things he sees. Amen. Amen. Well, you also share in your book that when problems arise, there's usually that underlying spiritual problem as well. How can we be on the lookout for those things before they even have time to fester and become dangerous? Mm-hmm. So, I'll, I'll here's I'll kind of give you the main point, and then I'll elaborate. Generally, the horizontal problems we have are results of a, a vertical problem. And so what I mean by that is we have problems in the relationship with our spouse because there's something wrong vertically in our relationship with Christ. And so I commonly, in marriage counseling, try to strengthen people's relationship with Christ because I believe when that relationship is strengthened, 
then the horizontal relationship with the spouse will be strengthened. And that's kind of related to what we were talking about earlier, that our relationship with our spouse is a reflection of our relationship with Christ. So just kind of picture this scenario. A husband and wife come in to me, come in to counseling with me. You know, they sit across from me and the husband trashes his wife and the wife trashes her husband. And the husband wants me to rebuke his wife and the wife wants me to rebuke her husband. And I start talking to the husband about the way, about his devotional time or his personal worship or his involvement in the church. And I do the same with the wife and they look at me, they're puzzled. You know, the husband says, you, did you hear me telling you how my wife disrespects me? And now you want to talk to me about my time reading the Bible. And the wife says, did you just hear how I told you that my husband screams at me? And now you're going to talk to me about what my prayer life looks like. You know, were you not listening? And I'll say, I was listening. And that's actually why I'm talking to you about these things, because I believe that if you will be more prayerful or you will be in the word more, you're not going to be a husband who screams at his wife and you're not going to be a wife who terribly disrespects her husband. But if you're far from Christ, then you can't be expected to obey the commands that he's given you. But if you grow in your relationship with Christ, many of these things that look like problems, which are actually symptoms, are going to find a way of working themselves out. And so I think the best counseling is that counseling that keeps the gospel center and points people toward, toward Christ and growth in him. And when that is strengthened, and when that's strengthened, then marriages themselves are strengthened. So what it looks like is it looks like getting a husband and wife to pray together or, and they're on their own as well, read the Bible together. That's a huge um, topic for me. It, it's very dear to my heart to see families around the word of God together, reading reading the word, this responsibility rests on men's shoulders because um, they're called to be the spiritual leaders. But, you know, if there's one thing I can really impress on, on families or listeners is the importance of not just, you know, being a Christian Sunday morning when you're at church, right. but having a Christ-centered home Amen. by being gathered around the word throughout the week. And I'm not saying you're going to be, you know, do it every single day, but trying to ensure that Christ is the center of your family, not just Sunday mornings. Well, they may not do family Bible study every day, but they have to be doing personal Bible study every mm-hmm. day. I, I firmly believe in that. that. Even if, you know, that's it's one of the questions I'll ask someone when they're talking to me. Oh, I got this and this and this. And I just don't know what to do. I said, when's the last time you read your Bible? I don't well have said. time for that. Really? Well, what are you doing well at said. four o'clock in the morning? Well, four o'clock, I'm sleeping. <laughs> you got time. <laughs> you can't give God 15, get up 15 minutes early. That's all you got to do. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to say, I just like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. so let, let's go to the word agape. Can you explain what you mean by the statement Good. that a husband's call is to agape his wife Good. and a wife's call is to respect her husband? It ties Good. right in what we're just talking about. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And, you know, we're, we uh, speak English and because we're so familiar with it and we're unfamiliar with other languages, we don't consider some of the absurdities of the English language. And one of them being that we have one word for love. And so when I say I love popcorn or I love wrestling or I love my wife or I love my parents or I love my children, I'm using the same word, even though I obviously love each of these considerably differently. I mean, you know, hopefully I love my wife differently than I love popcorn, but even, even in personal relationships, I love my wife differently than I love my children, than I love my mom or my friends. And so Greek, the Greek language recognizing the, these differences has multiple words for love. So one word is eros related to our word agape or erotica, and it's the love that's 
it's a, it, you could just say it's a selfish love. I mean, you can't build a relationship or a marriage on it. I, I would say it's important. It is important that we are attracted to our spouse, that we desire our spouse um, sexually. But it's a, Eros is not, it's not, um, it is conditional in that if your spouse changes, uh, then, you know, the way he or she looks, if, you're, if your marriage is not founded on agape, then your Eros for your spouse can change. So you can't, as important as Eros and even the Song of Solomon, even though it doesn't mention Eros, there's a sense in which it deals with that sort of attraction that, that, would, uh, Eros would, that would apply to Eros. There is a word storge. Or that's the word for familial love, the love that a mother would have for a child, um, or the the love that uh, you know children would have for their parents. And then there's the word um, uh, related to phileo, related to like Philadelphia, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love, and that's referring to uh, well, friendly or brotherly love. It's the love that you have for your you know your your close friends or your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the if you want to say premier love is agape. And agape is that love that is, if there's two words that define it, it would be sacrificial and unconditional. It's sacrificial and unconditional. It's And it's only used two ways in all of scripture. So let's deal with the first way it's used, which is God's love for us. And you see both the sacrificial and unconditional nature of agape when it defines or when it discusses God's love for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Now, if if love was a feeling, or an emotion, and it wasn't an action. And that, that actually might be something I'll mention real quick, because I think it can be very confusing. The, wor- the way the world views love is it's a feeling or emotion that can come and go. And you have, and the world actually wants to act like love is something that you have so little control over that there's a little baby with a bow and arrow that shoots you, and then you're hit by this arrow, and then you fall in love. And you can also fall out of love with this understanding. And that's why you'll see people that say, you know, I don't love this person anymore, or I'm, I'm no longer in love, or they'll even talk about almost like accidentally falling in love with someone else. I'm married. I did not intend to fall in love with this person at work, but you know, we'd run into each other in the break room and we talk. And then the next thing I know I'm in love with this person. This is absolutely unbiblical because the Bible presents love entirely as a choice Mm-hmm. And not as feelings or emotions. If you think of the love chapter, First Corinthians thirteen, there's no adjectives there. There's no describing words. Instead, it's all verbs because love is an action. Love is a choice. Love is patient. We can choose to be patient. Love is kind. We, we know the words there in First Corinthians thirteen. They're all things that we have the potential to do or not to do. Which is why Jesus can command us to love our enemies. If if love was a feeling, you can't feel affection for an enemy. In fact, you, right. you might, <laughs> you probably feel the opposite of that, but you can love your enemy when you understand love as a choice and you can choose to be patient, kind toward, toward this person that maybe you can't, you can't stand. And hopefully um, feelings can follow actions. So kind of the idea is if you, if you hate someone, but you choose to love them through your actions, then your feelings can follow those actions and your feelings can begin to change. But if you're guided by your feelings, then you, you never feel like you can obey any of these commands. So when, and we see, and my whole point is we see this in John three sixteen or in first John four, when it says in this is love that God gave his son. When the Bible talks about love, it shows us an action. And in God's case, 
the way his love is shown. It doesn't say, you know, God, for God to love the world, he thinks about us all the time, or his heart is a flutter, or he, you know, it, like all the, the ways that the world would define love. Instead, it says he sacrificed his son. That was the manifestation of his love for us. He loved us so much that he was willing to do that. You see the sacrificial nature. You also see the unconditional nature behind the word whosoever. For God so loved the world that whosoever, it's unconditional. It, it's not conditional on a person being a certain way or being a type of person or doing a certain thing other than believing in Christ. And so it's the same in Ephesians um, you know, 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church who gave himself for her, who sacrificed. So that's the sacrificial nature of agape there. Now, the other way that agape is used in scripture, because I told you there's two ways, is interestingly, man's love for sin. So a few verses after John 3.16 is John 3.19, where it says that men loved darkness rather than light. And so you say, well, why would, why would agape be used to describe man's love for sin? It makes perfect sense. Man has a sacrificial, unconditional love for sin. Man, what, what, what will man not sacrifice for sin? Man will sacrifice almost anything. He'll sacrifice his health, his marriage, his children, his finances, his job. There's nothing man will not sacrifice for sin. And then regarding the unconditional or unreciprocated nature, man loves sin, even though sin does not love man back. It is totally unconditional. We, we, will, we will love sin while it is killing us. Yeah. We'll love sin yeah. while it is ruining everything good in our lives. That's a very unconditional love. It is not conditional whatsoever on what sin does for us. And so it's a perfect, if you understand agape, it really helps you understand God's love for us and our love for sin. Yeah. Amen. Oh, that's good. That's good. You know, as we're talking about love, something you always hear, mainly young people today, but it could be older people as well, where I'm in love. You know, you, you dedicate an entire chapter in your book to talking about what is love. Okay. So just, you, you, you hit on the agape part and the, the philo part, but just talk a little bit more about, you know, what we call puppy love and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's more of, of an infatuation. I have this friend yeah. of mine and he, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. He had bounced from relationship to relationship until he's in his late thirties because, and he's a, he's a neat guy. I mean, he, he's a close friend of mine and, he, and he's been a Christian for, you know, most of his life because he found the infatuation always disappearing after a few weeks or months. And he thought that was love. And so he would contact me and he'd tell me about some girl that he's super excited about. And, you know, this, this is the, this is the one for me. I finally met the girl and I'm, and, and it got to the point where I would just say, Hey brother, just get, you know, give this a few months. I, I know what's going to happen. You're going to lose the infatuation. You're going to be on to the next girl. And sure enough, that's, that's what would happen. And so that's what, that's what people are feeling. That's not, that's not love. Love is a choice. Um, so it's, it's really not biblical to say, I, I have fallen out of love or I no longer love my spouse. If you say, I no longer love my spouse, and you mean it biblically, what you really mean is I have chosen to no longer love my spouse because we can choose to love our spouse. And even in Ephesians 5.25, to go back to that, if it, after it commands husbands to love their wives, since that's the primary command for husbands, it begs the question, why are there any verses that follow it? Why doesn't it just give the command and then stop? Well, it goes on. There, the other verses describe what it looks like to obey verse 25. So it says, 
you know, sanctify and cleanse with the washing of water by the word. And so the idea is a husband loves his wife, not by the way he feels toward her, but by his actions toward her. And in this case, sanctifying and cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so that he gets, because the, the passage is about Christ's relationship to the church, but it's important to remember it's the primary marriage passage because Christ's relationship to the church is serving as the example for husbands' relationships with their wives. And so what Christ does for the church is what husbands are expected to do for their wives. And so the way that Christ sanctifies and cleanses the church is the way that husbands are to sanctify and cleanse their wives, which kind of goes back to something I said earlier and, and why I have tried to stress so much in my ministry, the importance of families or men reading the word with their w- with their wives, mm-hmm. because that's the primary command to see, so you say, well, what does it look like for a husband to love his wife? Well, what it looks like is to do those things that are in Ephesians 5, 26 through the rest of the chapter down to 30, verse 32 or 33. Mm-hmm. Amen. So. Amen. Hey, folks, Pastor Bob here. We're all out of time for today's portion of this great interview, part two of a three-part interview with Pastor Scott LaPierre. Now, this book we've been discussing, Your Marriage, God's Way, a Biblical Guide to a Christ-Centered Marriage, it is so needful in today's society to strengthen your marriage God's way. Hey, man, I cannot emphasize this enough. And you need to get the workbook that goes along with this book. Just drop down into the show notes, click the links right there, and it'll take you right there so you can order these books. I, I I can't recommend these books enough, not in today's social climate where it seems like everything goes. Well, that's not what God says, amen? You need to put him first and foremost. But folks, these books will just bless and strengthen your message, your marriage. I cannot stress this enough. Now, be sure to come back for the conclusion of this great interview in the next episode because Pastor Scott LaPierre, he's diving into some good stuff now. I, oh, it, you're going to love this next episode. You're, you're absolutely going to thrive off of the information he's going to be sharing with us. So till next time, it's Pastor Bob reminding you, be blessed in all that you do. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when another episode is published. With over 800 interviews and 1,000 published episodes, Pastor Bob is known as a podcasting expert for helping others to create their own podcast to share their messages with the world. Please visit our website at www.podcastersforchrist.com. That web address again is www.podcastersforchrist.com for more information. Until next time, be blessed in all that you do. Are you a Christian entrepreneur, coach, or author with a message that needs to be heard? Picture this, your voice reaching thousands, your story inspiring hearts, and your business flourishing like never before. Introducing Faithcasters, the ultimate platform that connects faith-driven professionals like you with the power of podcasting. Become a sought-after guest on Faith-Based Podcast. Share your unique insights and connect with like-minded individuals who share your passion for faith and entrepreneurship as well. 
Imagine your expertise reaching a wider audience, expanding your network, and propelling your business to new heights. Well, it's all within reach with Faithcasters. So don't wait. Take the first step today on your journey to greatness by visiting our website at faithcaster.org. That's faithcaster.org. Join the Faithcasters community now and unleash the full potential of your faith-driven enterprise. You do not want to miss this opportunity. Faithcasters, where faith meets podcasting and your dreams become reality. Visit faithcaster.org. Let's soar together. And remember, anyone can be a podcaster, but only a Christian can become a faithcaster. Faithcasters, your voice, your platform, your success.